You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your hosts, Michelle Collins. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Bookish. The canon continues. I am your host, Michelle Collins. I'm here alone today on the microphone. No co-host. Um, I was supposed to have one for this episode and for the book that I'm going to be discussing. Unfortunately, not everybody is fond of the idea of lending their voice through the microphone for public consumption, uh, which I totally understand. We all have a different personalities and different likes and dislikes. And so I completely understand that. But I did find a lot of value in this book. And so I thought I still wanted to discuss it. And rather than... Um, search for somebody else who has possibly read it or could read it quickly. I thought I'll just go ahead and I'll go ahead and discuss it on my own today. It's a short book. So this um, episode's probably not going to be incredibly long as, or at least as long as it normally is, which is right around an hour. Um, so we'll see what happens. I did want to do something a little different today. And I think I may do this going forward. We'll test it out. We'll see what happens. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to do was to kind of bring you all up to date on some books to look forward to. As you know, uh, or as I hope you know, this podcast is a choir podcast. Um, and as such, choir is constantly releasing new books, some from experienced authors, some from brand new authors. And I just felt like possibly highlighting some of those that are coming up might be a good idea. So coming up very, very soon, as a matter of fact, I think I'm going to look here real quick because I just want to make sure I'm saying it correctly. I think the book I'm thinking of is coming up tomorrow. Maybe. Let me look. Hold on. Sorry. Taking a little bit of time to get to the calendar here. Um, yeah. Tomorrow, the Bonfire Sessions is going to be releasing. Many of you may know choir's author Matthew DiStefano. And Mike Machuga have written several of these small pamphlets. They have a podcast that is sponsored through Choir called The Bonfire Sessions. And their latest endeavor is being released tomorrow. Um, these are released once a quarter. Uh, so many of you may already have uh, book one, uh, which is their spring volume. Um, if you don't, I'll, t I'll give you a little synopsis of it just so you have a better idea of what it's about. Um, this is straight off of Amazon. I'm just going to read it. Uh, the Bonfire Session Spring is a thought-provoking booklet that discusses deconstruction and how it impacted the author's friendship, suffering and how it fits into the human narrative, doubt and how it's not the opposite of faith, evangelicalism and living an authentic life, and how Buddhism and Christianity can coexist. That's the first one. The second one, both of these have already been released. The second one is their summer pamphlet. And this one goes into... Um, a little bit of a personal issue for both of the authors. They lived in the area in California, which several years ago was completely destroyed by wildfires in paradise. Um, so they're discussing that fire and how they lost so much in it. Um, they're discussing racism, white privilege in America, and how free will is often misunderstood in the West. And so the third one is set to release tomorrow. If you have, actually, as I say that, I'm realizing that's going to be today as this podcast is released. That newest one will be available to you. If you're at all interested, you should look those up. Um, Matthew is a very good friend of mine. I've read both of these. They're fantastic. I've read every book Matthew has published. Um, so give them a try. Give them a shout out. Let them know what you think of the books. I'm sure they'll be appreciative. And then coming up in just a few weeks after that, uh, the 27th of October, 
Choir will be releasing another book, and it is called The Wages of Grace by Brandon Dragon. Um, basically, it's a novel, it's a fictional novel uh, about an impoverished immigrant uh, that kind of traces the life of, a, of an impoverished in- immigrant through his childhood, discovery of his true love, and the horrors of war. And then uh, kind of culminates with something that has violently interrupted his life. Um, so, according to the synopsis that I have, the wages of grace ask the universally human questions of not only whether healing and forgiveness are possible, but ultimately, are they worth the cost? So, it sounds like it'd be great. I love fiction, I love a good fiction novel. Um, it's a nice break for me from, you know, it tend to get mired down in a lot of theological stuff and a lot of, um, you know, self-help and and all of this stuff that's very scholastic. So to me, a good fictional novel is, is like taking a little bit of a vacation, but I want it to teach me something as well. I am demanding in that way. So, um, I actually have a copy of this. Uh, Brandon was nice enough to send me one and I've loved it so far. I'm not quite finished. I've loved it so far. Uh, so again, this one comes out two weeks from today. As I'm saying that, this podcast is releasing on Tuesday. So it'll be two weeks from Tuesday. It'll be the 27th of October. So those are the two that are coming up in the rest of this month from Choir Publishing, in case you are interested. Um, The other thing I wanted to do, and I don't, I I typically stray away from mentioning anything news related um, or anything like that, because I feel like there's enough discussion, I guess, in the social media atmosphere. Um, But I did notice something uh, that's coming up in the next few weeks. And I thought this is something that we should be aware of and should probably have discussions about because it's very, very important to a lot of people. It affects uh, my family. And as such, um, I feel like it's worthy of discussion. Yes, I know it's worthy of discussion because it affects my family, but it is just worthy in in totality. for those of you that don't know, uh, the if you'll go back and remember during President Barack Obama's presidency, of course, they passed the Affordable Care Act, and the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear a case on that on November 10th. Um, it basically has the potential to affect a lot of people based on their decision, and the biggest thing that's under debate there or the primary thing that's under debate there is the individual mandate. Uh, if you will remember that law that was passed provided health care for everybody, but in so doing, it demanded that everybody actually have health insurance. So a lot of people were very, very upset by that because it required them to have an expense they were not used to having. Um, others felt that the cost increased dramatically because of the act. And so there was a lot of debate back and forth as to whether it was good or not. Um, The individual mandate is what is up before the Supreme Court. They will be deciding whether that is constitutional or not, that that we can be forced to purchase something. Um, And there's lots of examples on both sides from people for and, you know, pro and con in the debate. Um, But one of the things that stands to, to change, and this is where I said it affects me, If the individual mandate falls, if it's considered unconstitutional, it puts the rest of the act um, at risk as well. And one of the stipulations of that act deals with pre-existing conditions. 
um, any health condition diagnosed before signing up for the insurance plan. So if you had diabetes, if you had cancer, if you had asthma, if you were pregnant, yes, pregnancy is a pre-existing condition. Um, for those of you that don't know that, uh, in my family's case, epilepsy, all of these were considered pre-existing conditions and insurance companies can no longer discriminate against you for having a pre-existing condition. Uh, for many people, for the insurance that I had, um, the pre-existing condition was not covered for the first year. Um, so that was actually even a little better because some insurance companies will not cover pre-existing condition in totality. So definitely some stuff on the table. Obviously, also on the table is just basic health care for people that are low income um, and un unable to afford medical insurance. The reality is medical insurance through the insurance companies did increase in cost after this act was passed. And it kind of, a, it kind of annoys me and it kind of makes me laugh ironically that most people blame um, the Affordable Care Act for that when in reality, it was the insurance companies that chose to raise their prices. And yet I don't hear many people angry at them. So I'm trying to figure out how they're not being shoved in there as part of the problem when they so obviously are. Anyway, just wanted to highlight that a little bit. As I said, I want to start highlighting some stuff that I think is important. You're stuck with my opinions. Um, if you're listening to the podcast, you're stuck with me sharing with you the news that I think is uh, applicable. And uh, But this one does seem pretty, uh, pretty applicable across the board. All of us want good health care. And I'm willing to bet that most of us have people in our lives, if not us ourselves, who are um, at the whim of a pre-existing condition. So definitely something to be watching. We should be taking great care to uh, recognize what, what may or may not change for people with something like that. Um, but let's get to the book. Um, as I mentioned, uh, this book was chosen by somebody else who was going to share the mic with me and then decided that was not to their liking, which I completely understand. And there's no hard, you know, hard feelings over that at all. It is somebody that I uh, have had a pretty long relationship with and I really look up to. Um, I think she's a beautiful person and I know that she has personally gone through um, a form of religious deconstruction, a change in her life, drastic changes in her life. And so I remember her suggesting this book and saying this was something that she felt very strongly um, was beneficial. So uh, as I said, I'm going to go ahead and talk about the book myself. The book is called The Four Agreements, and it's by Don Miguel Ruiz. Many of you may have heard of this book. I had not until she brought it to me, but it's something that has got a lot of wisdom in it. I'm not sure that I totally buy in across the board. And of course, part of that is probably my own um, insecurities surfacing, um, me wanting to justify choices I've made or whatever. You know, we all do that. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to kind of open this up and just kind of talk about this book um, kind of in an overview. As I said, it's called The Four Agreements. Um, I'll read you the back. Uh, in the four agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz reveals the source of self-limiting beliefs that rob us of joy and create needless suffering. Based on ancient Toltec wisdom, the four agreements offer a powerful code of conduct that can rapidly transform our lives to a new experience of freedom, true happiness, and love. And if you're thinking this sounds like a self-help book, you are correct. That's what it actually is. 
the genre, I guess, is spirituality, self-help, personal growth, whatnot. Um, so it, it is kind of interesting where this kind of comes from. Um, so basically the book, it's taking its inspiration from some spiritual beliefs held by, as I mentioned, a group of people called the Toltec. Um, and I'll, I'll explain them a little bit more here in just a minute. But according to the author of this book, everything a person does is based on agreements that they've made with themselves or with others or with God and maybe even life itself, if that makes sense. So in these agreements, um, they tell themselves who they are. They tell themselves how to behave, what's possible, what's impossible. Um, so you can kind of see where the self-help stuff comes in. Um, several years ago, there were people that were uh, very much into a book called The Secret. And of course, that was just a more, I guess, Christian tradition of kind of the same thing. It was all about what you believe and what you can bring into your life through that belief. Um, I will be honest with you. I never read that book. Um, I'm aware of it. I didn't read it because at the time, of course, I was very mired in my traditional conservative evangelical religion, and it was considered kind of new age. And so I've not yet gone back to read it, kind of fell out of um, importance or popularity, I guess would be a better word. Um, but so you, these two seem to have some of the same things as from what I understand anyway. So again, these agreements um, tell you how, tell you who you are, what's good behavior, what's possible in your life, what's impossible. Um, some agreements that people create, uh, may not cause issues. I think they are very clear about that, but that certain agreements can come from a place of fear and they have the power to like rob you of emotional energy and diminish your self-worth. Um, and of course, I, I I think we all feel that from time to time. And so I think this is the hard part and maybe a little bit of the pushback is trying to decide if I'm responsible for that. And of course I don't want to be, as I'm sure you don't want to be responsible for the you know, uh, diminishing your own self-worth, but we do it. Um, the book actually talks about these kind of self-limiting agreements, self-limiting agreements and the fact that they create needless suffering. Um, so his fix is that we have to get rid of like society imposed and fear-based agreements. Um, and that many of those being subconscious, uh, influence our behavior and our mindset. So it sounds very good. Like, like this is something we need to get rid of. This is something we need to work on. Um, another premise of the book, uh, suggests that much of suffering is self-created. Well, again, not something many of us want to admit. Um, but we are often the author of our own suffering, uh, based on our behavior or what we allow into our lives. And it, I can remember working with my life coach and being told, you know, that victim mentality is what was holding me back. And I remember pushing back at the time and saying, but that's not fair because sometimes you are a victim. And I think that what is being said here and what he was trying to teach me at the time was nobody is saying that you haven't been victimized, but the important thing is to not view yourself as a victim, but to move beyond that thinking. Um, so again, moving out of that self-created suffering, um, a lot of that is comes from, of course, through negative thoughts about our situations, about our lives, about our relationships. Um, but in this book, the author kind of identifies sources of unhappiness in life 
And he proposes these four agreements that we can make with ourselves to improve our overall state of well-being. Uh, it's like making a pact with ourselves, uh, if you will. Um, and his contention is that in doing so, you're able to dramatically impact the amount of happiness that you feel in your life, regardless of all the out- external crap that shows up in our life. Um, but I was fascinated in the book. Uh, they do a little bit of a history of where this spiritual belief came from. And as I mentioned, that there was the Toltec people. And so I actually looked them up. I went into a little more, I kind of went and did some, you know, some Google research at the very least we should do Google research. Uh, of course there's a plethora of information available when you do that, but, um, I came across somebody who is a life coach who actually studied with Don Miguel Ruiz and is now working on their own from this tradition. And so going back, she goes into a little bit of the history of the Toltec And so I kind of wanted to go through this because I thought it was really interesting. Um, The Toltec tradition is a philosophy or a way of life, if you will, um, that teaches how to make choices that result in happiness. Um, This came from a civilization that lived in Southern Mexico around 900 AD. And apparently they were a pretty violent race, which I thought was interesting as it pertains to this conversation. So they were kind of a violent race. Uh, They actually brought warfare to Mesoamerica. And along the way, they had a secret society develop. And it was dedicated to preserving the knowledge of the ancient ones. I'm using air quotes, the ancient ones. The ancient ones were a race of people who were teachers of spirituality, science, the arts. I'm sure we all know somebody like that today, but these were a certain group of people uh, and the members of the secret society became known as men and women of knowledge. Um, And they, of course, embraced the ideals, the spiritual concepts and the peaceful ways of the so-called ancient ones. Okay. So the ancient ones are understood in as illusionary, I guess, and they use the universal laws of nature create a life based on unconditional love and self-discovery, which sounds really awesome, by the way. Uh, They considered all of life to be a part of the great mystery and knew there was no way to separate the secular from the sacred or science from spirit. Now, that's a big debate right now. Of course, the tagline for this podcast is bridging the sacred secular divide. Um, And we have to do that because for so long we have separated the sacred and the secular and said that never the two shall meet or that they do not have any, uh, any influence in one another. And I don't believe that to be true. That's why I'm able to say there's so much to learn in books, whether they are spiritual books or not, we can apply spiritual understanding to them. Of course, one of the big controversial subject matters right now is of course, science, um, As a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, uh, our our president said the other day that if Joe Biden were to win the election, that he would, I forget how he said it, what did he say, that he would listen to science as though that were somehow um, problematic, like science is not to be trusted. Uh, And to me, that kind of screams of anti-intellectualism, which of course is another subject I'm very interested in. But So this group of people, going back to this, this group of people believed that there was a connection, that there was no way to separate the secular from the sacred or science from the spirit. 
And so they ended up kind of looking like magicians or wizards, you know, um, witches or warlocks or whatever you would want to say. Um, apparently they could perform great feats like healing the sick and they could create whatever they wanted. Of course, this is folklore. Um, and they could transform matter. Now I'll, I'll admit that in the area of Christianity, we believe a lot of that. Uh, however, I just feel like we demonize it when it's outside of our understanding or our Christian tradition. Um, but in, in, from this perspective, in order to accomplish those kind of things, these people had to achieve personal freedom. In other words, they had to develop the ability. They had to develop these abilities through these agreements, basically. Um, so this became a well-known and well-guarded secret passed down from master to apprentice. Anybody else thinking about, uh, um, Harrison Ford right now and, the oh my gosh, what was that movie? The Crusades, uh, Indiana Jones. And remember there was the knight that was protecting the chalice. That's what it reminded me of when I was reading this. So this lineage, it kind of took on its own flavor and its person, its own personality. Um, and this life coach that I'm reading through her stuff on this subject, she actually is in the San Diego area, which was where I was not very long ago, close to there. Um, so she says that the Toltec viewed the universe as a complex energy system, everything composed of energy, right? And all energy has consciousness. And they say it's neither good nor bad. It's neither positive nor a negative. Energy just is, life just is, um, which of course is something that's very difficult for us because we tend to be very binary. Um, we, we view life, you know, through the lens of good or bad, positive or negative. Um, and so learning to recognize that things exist without a charge associated with them, other than the charge that we associate with them is somewhat difficult to accept. Um, so that's what they're saying. The idea that everything in life is emotionally neutral and that it runs contrary to everything we've been taught. Um, so again, she talks about the duality of things, right and wrong, positive and negative, good and bad, black and white, you and me. Um, again, we do that as well in my, in my, in my opinion, I know I do. Um, and I'm trying so very hard not to do that, to not have that view of everything. So the way they're suggesting is that basically she viewed it as like a womb that holds everything within it and lovingly holds it. Um, and how I view the events in my life depends on where I'm at in that womb at the moment, where I'm standing. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's why we can look back and say, well, hindsight is twenty twenty. We're able to see much more clearly the things that have come and gone and that are not something we're currently dealing with. We're able to look at them and to find the object, you know, the objectable view or not objectable, but objective view of that circumstance. And then maybe apply it a little easier to our life um, as opposed to coming at it from the perspective of a lot of emotion. So anyway, that was the Toltec. Sorry, that was a little more information, but I was really fascinated by the Toltec. Um, and so let's go into a little bit of the agreements. The book, of, again, is called The Four Agreements. So let's start with those. The first agreement is called Be Impeccable With Your Word. Now that brings up a conversation because what does that mean to be impeccable? Well, interestingly enough, and I didn't know this, I had to go and look it up. 
the word impeccable comes from, um, well, its root is in the Latin, peccatus, 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 meaning sin. And then, of course, impeccable. So you have the M in front of it, um, means without. So basically, he's saying, uh, the author saying a sin, it's a sin. Well, best way to say this. He describes a sin to be anything that goes against oneself. So therefore, being impeccable with your language means to take responsibility for your own actions and remain without judgment against others and yourself, which is really, really difficult. Um, So in essence, this agreement is focused on the significance of speaking with integrity and carefully choosing your words. And that is before you say them out loud, which of course is very difficult. Um, So what are some different ways that we can be impeccable um, with our, with our words? Well, again, it's the obvious speaking with integrity, honesty, and truthfulness, uh, saying only what you mean, saying only what you desire, avoid using words to speak negatively about yourself or to gossip about others. Um, and to use your words in a positive direction of truth and love. So how many times do you repeat, I don't have enough time to get everything done? And is that actually true? I know that I feel that way often. I'll sit down in my desk and look at my calendar and think I have far too much to do on it. There's no way I'm going to get it all done. But is that true? Or is that just me emoting my frustration at my calendar or um, voicing my belief that maybe I'm not capable? These are This is very negative self-speak. So I'm basically spending my time thinking you know, what I can't do. Um, And so I have to really start evaluating if I'm speaking impeccably, is what's coming out of my mouth actually true or is it just something habitually that I believe? And I really had to sit and ponder that for a little bit because honestly, probably the majority of the stuff I say, especially about myself, comes from that habitual place of believing I'm not enough. Um, So Again, this is a shift. This is something you have to work at. It's incredibly difficult because when I became aware of this, I actually started thinking about it and trying to do this. And I found myself really struggling. Um, So the shift is really slight. Uh, It's more of moving like to a positive statement about where you are. So instead of I'm so tired, which kind of has a negative connotation to it, maybe instead you can say I'm excited to go to sleep tonight, right? Which is a subtle difference, but it does make it sound more positive, right? Um, so instead of saying, I'm so busy, maybe you can be thankful that you have so many wonderful things to fill up your day. (laughs) I don't know. That's not the first thought that comes to mind when I look at my calendar, but I can admit that I'm thankful that I have work on my calendar that's allowing me to provide for myself and my family. So I guess that is the subtle shift. So making those little changes like that, um, allows for you to begin to operate from the positive perspective. So instead of speaking what you don't have or what's gone wrong, you speak of the solution that you want or the possibilities of what can go right in the future. Um, If you catch yourself, again, this is really tough. If you catch yourself gossiping or being involved in a conversation where gossip is is happening around you, um, shift. That's what they talk about here. Shift the conversation towards something that would interest them in another way. Um, 
And that's very difficult, especially when people are very keyed in on the negative. And of course, much of our society is polarized right now and much of it is negative. So you have to do this for yourself before you can start thinking you can influence anybody else with it. And once you start trying to do it for yourself, you realize how very difficult this is. Um, So practicing tuning into yourself, asking how you feel, uh, if you feel good, are you thinking with integrity? Are you in an alignment with what you want in life? Um, and, And speaking those things, and this is actually biblical when you think about it. There's a verse in the Bible that says, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the exact wording, but speak those things that are not as though they were. And so again, this can be, it can sound very new agey, you know, kind of pop psychology, speak what you want into existence, but we are powerful beings. We are, we are very powerful in our thought processes. We have so much more to offer. Why wouldn't we try to offer that to ourselves for our own benefit and our own good? So that is the first one, the first agreement, how to be impeccable with your words. Um, you go back here. I'm going to go back to my notes. So be impeccable with your words is the first agreement. The second agreement is don't take anything personally. Oh boy. I do not know how to do that one in all honesty. I mean, how do you not take so much of life personally? It, because it feels very personal. Um, but it does kind of flow out of that first agreement, being impeccable with your words that teaches you how to respond when faced with someone who's not, you know, if, if we learn to not take offense, right. Um, not to take anything personally, it's because we've learned that that person is speaking without being impeccable with their words. So we're recognizing that the shortfall is not us, but it's, it's them. And that sounds mean. I don't, I hope I'm explaining that well. Um, Basically, taking things personally, according to Ruiz, is a direct result of our domestication. And in his words, the domestication process is our education on societal norms, what we're told is acceptable and what isn't, what we're told we should do, what we shouldn't do. And he says that happens in all stages of life. So when you're a child, of course, depending on your socialization, um, your, your primary it education on what's acceptable or not comes from your family. But then as you grow it, it comes from those people that are in your lives that uh, carry a lot of influence, like your friends or teachers or mentors. Um, And so we have to be very careful with that. So it's during that process that we're actually taught that everything that happens, that people say to us, we have to take personally. And I remember I've been told over and over and over that I am an intimidate that I am intimidating, which funny I find quite funny. But anyway, uh, it used to bother me a lot, and I used to sit and question, "What about me is intimidating? I don't understand." And I've had people tell me, "Well, you're intimidating because you're very well educated, um, or you speak like an educated person. Um, you're intimidating because you read a lot. You're intimidating because you're physically fit." Um, I've had all kinds of reasons thrown at me. And one day it was like a light bulb went off and I realized I'm not intimidating. They're intimidated. There's a difference. When they say I'm intimidating, they're trying to put off what they feel onto me as my responsibility. And it isn't. 
What they should be saying is, I feel intimidated by you. And then that leads to a question as to why do you feel intimidated? What is it that you find to be your shortcomings that are causing that feeling? So, and we can go into this with a lot of different subject matter. That's just my personal experience. Um, but often that's what's happening when we are taking offense with what people say, when we take it personally, it's because we are identifying with that person's opinion. We are self-identifying when in reality, the majority of the time, most of what is said to us is a, is better understood as descriptive of the person saying it rather than ourselves, as I just mentioned. So in my example, I'm not intimidating. They are intimidated. So that means that if they were to look at that from their perspective, they would say something about that person makes me feel less than. But our default is to try and push that responsibility off onto somebody else. And so what ends up happening though, is when we take everything personally, we end up feeling as though we're constantly slighted. Everything that everybody says becomes a bone of contention, if you will, right? Um, he has a quote here. I really liked personal importance or taking things personally is the maximum expression of selfishness because we make the assumption that everything is about me. So we, we kind of have two different things happening here. When somebody says something to us there that we take personally, two things are happening. First of all, we're accepting that what they've said is about us personally, rather than viewing it as something they're dealing with. And in so doing that, we become very almost narcissistic that everything is about us. And so we have to start separating ourselves. And I've, I've said this to many people um, in social media conversations. I've said it often. If I'm describing a, cir- a circumstance or a personality characteristic, I will, without a, f- without a doubt or without fail, have somebody show up that is offended by me saying that because they've identified there. And I will ask them, why did you identify here? I didn't name you. I didn't identify you. What about this made you self-identify here? I will tell you that question does not go over very well. Most people are very put off by that question because they don't want to accept that they were the ones that self-identified there. Because again, the onus is back on them rather than on you. And so they want to differentiate themselves from that responsibility. But I think it's something that we really have to identify within our own makeup, in our own personalities, and with our own reactions and say, I do this. When somebody says, you know, people that are this, that are XYZ are because of this, we immediately find offense in that. Well, why? Is it because we can identify there? If it's not us, why do we need to take it personally? So it comes down to me. He doesn't talk about this, but I, to me, it came down to this. Either I identify there because it's true and I need to self-evaluate or it's not me and I can go on past it because I don't have to be bothered by it. Either way, it de-escalates a situation when we put the onus back on us for understanding rather than judgment and accusation to the person that has said something that has upset us. Um, So I find this one to be really interesting, not taking anything personally. I also find it incredibly difficult to do. I don't know. I just can't believe I'm on my own on that. I think most people probably have a hard time with that. I would think anyway. Um, But again, his point here is that this point of view comes from all the programming that we've received during this so-called domestication. Um, And so 
we have accepted that we have made it a part of who we are and now we are offended by it which is ironic and again something we are doing to ourselves um the third agreement is called don't make assumptions and i really feel like that goes very close in line with not taking anything personally first of all to take something personally almost always you've made the assumption that it's about you so obviously they go hand in hand but Agreement three, don't make assumptions. Um, When one assumes what others are thinking, it actually creates stress. It can create interpersonal conflict. um, And it assumes a representation of the truth, which is interesting. Uh, According to Ruiz, he believes that a solution to overcoming the act of making an assumption is to ask questions and ensure that the communication is clear between the parties involved. Now, that's really interesting because I know quite a few people who actually ask a lot of questions. And I do believe that they're asking without emotion involved, but almost without fail, what you will see is people respond emotionally. Um, When they're just being asked a question, they'll make an assumption that you have called them out on something when you're just trying to understand. and again, as I looked into, into this one more closely, I found that other people felt the same way that the second and third agreement kind of went together. Um, a danger in this is that we're assuming that our reality is the same as somebody else's reality. Um, so we fit whatever they do or whatever they say into how we view the world. So that's dangerous because we can't get into another person's head and we don't know what they're thinking. We're making an assumption about what that looks like or sounds like. Um, so again, have you ever seen that where, uh, especially in written in the written word, of course, we're very big on text messaging and social media posts and things like that. It's very easy to read into what somebody is saying that, and ascribing an emotion to them uh, as they're saying it. Which, of course, is why in social media atmosphere, you now have such a big preponderance and use of emoticons because people are trying to say, no, look, I'm, I'm, you know, this is my feeling while I'm saying this because the words are kind of static and they're not they're not allowing for us to figure it out, basically. Um, So assuming. So why do people assume Uh, he brings that up? Why do people assume? Uh, as well, assuming is safer than the truth. Uh, a lot of times it's easier for us to assume we know what is happening and to live from that perspective than to actually do the work and ask the questions and maybe even be more unhappy. Um, assuming also distracts us from our own feelings. It keeps us from evaluating why something is having such an important effect on us. Um, and assuming actually allows us to impose our reality on other people. And expect them to act the way we want them to or to think that we, the way we want to. It's kind of dangerous. Um, you guys know that old saying, uh, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me. Well, that's it's an old saying for a reason. <laughs> um, so if we're not asking questions, we actually are pretty comfortable continuing on with the illusion that everything is okay. Um, it's easier to assume that what other people are thinking than to get down and dirty and, and really hash out what's happening. Um, so it takes courage to not assume it takes a lot of courage to ask questions. Um, and so I, again, I find those two pretty closely related and both very difficult to deal with. Um, okay. Fourth agreement always do your best. 
well, that seems very subjective. <laughs> and it is. It is very subjective. Um, the fourth agreement allows readers of the book to have a better insight on achieving progress towards their goals in life. Um, this agreement actually integrates the first three agreements into your daily life and in living to your full potential. It involves doing the best that you can do. Uh, and of course that varies and it's going to vary not only by person, but by circumstance or situation. And we have to kind of avoid that self-judgment um, in every given moment. Like, because again, as I said earlier, you're going to have feelings that come up later on. You're going to understand it from a different perspective later on. So living from always doing your best comes down to each one of us deciding what that looks like because our best is going to be different. Um, so the key message of the fourth agreement is not necessarily to be the best, but to be your best. And as he points out, your best may not be the same from day to day or circumstance to circumstance, right? Because of course, sometimes we're going to be tired or maybe we're going to be sick. Um, or maybe we're having a really good day, an up day. Our best is going to look better on that day. Um, so he's, he actually cautions here about not overworking yourself. Um, he, he says, if you push yourself past your best, you'll wind up overworked and unable to give your all. Therefore, the key to this agreement is to, in acknowledging where you are mentally each day and working within those limits. Um, so I had a situation this last week. I had a, a really awful emotional situation that came up. And in trying to get back to my normal routine, um, I found myself in the gym, of course, Many people know that I'm a bodybuilder. I found myself back in the gym and yet I found myself almost feeling as though I wasn't visible. I know that sounds weird. I felt numb. And as I looked around the gym, I didn't feel like I was actually there. I felt very dis uh, distanced or um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. I felt as though I was not there. Like I could see me there, but I couldn't feel me there, if that makes sense. I had a, a big struggle with trying to accomplish what I needed to do that day. And there was no way I was going to be able to give my best. And I'm using air quotes there because my best would insinuate that that day could be compared to a day in which I had all kinds of energy. Everything was positive and I felt truly uh, immersed in the experience. Well, they're not comparable. And so that's what he's saying. You have to work within the limits of where you are mentally each day as it pertains to giving your best. Um, and that that actually leads to a place of inner peace, right? It stops that persistent, critical inner voice, that negativity that seems to loom in our brains and const constantly dog us. Um, very easy, much easier said than done, obviously. It takes a lot of practice. Uh, but I have this quote from him. If you just do your best, there is no way you can judge yourself. And if you don't judge yourself, there is no way you're going to suffer from guilt, blame, and self-punishment. We could all do well to not suffer from guilt, blame, and self-punishment. And we do that to ourselves far too often. Um, we have to kind of develop some self-compassion. And I think it's amazing. He actually advises that his readers should accept that their capacity for work or focus will differ, as I said, depending on the day, even moment to moment. It will also change during the course of the day. So it's not even 
one day that you're going to have a certain kind of reaction. It's moment to moment sometimes. So it's worth taking the time to consider when you're most productive and then plan your schedule because you're going to automatically be better. And, um, so, and this is kind of a controversial statement statement, but he said, making mistakes is not only okay, but it's essential. And I like that idea because I do believe that it's in making mistakes that we learn. That's where we learn, you know, and I've heard a lot of people say that I, I don't lose. I just, how does people say that? It's not a win or lose situation. It's a win or learn situation. And I love that because losing is obviously has a negative connotation to it. But even when we're not successful, there's something we can always learn. Right. And so I love that, that he's saying that mistakes are okay. Um, he actually encourages us to be self-aware and to learn from our mistakes. And he said, this revelation is a key part of doing your best and improving yourself. Um, because we do learn through repetition and practice is key. So even when we mess up, when we make mistakes, when we fail, it's about getting back up and starting over again and learning from that. Um, he does talk about finding motivation, uh, and he explores the different factors that affect motivation. Um, he talks about doing work that you find fulfilling. And of course that's going to feel more positive because you're enjoying it. Um, and he also says that you should find satisfaction in being productive and doing tasks so well that you enjoy the action and the process instead of constantly looking for a reward. Um, you should work hard because it makes you happy, not because of some external motivation. Well, I don't know that that's entirely realistic, but I get what he's saying there. Of course, there's always going to be external motivation involved in a lot of the things that we do, whether it be business or personal, you know. Uh, personal enjoyment or whatever, but enjoying it is a reward in and of itself. Um, so he says, if you choose to live by the four agreements and continue to do your best every day, then gradually your best will become better and better, right? It's like a habit, a second nature. So he says, self-acceptance is central to the fourth agreement. And by working on cultivating self-acceptance, it makes it easier for you to live by the other three agreements as well. Um, he very much reminds, and I think this is definitely something that needs to be said, the agreements take practice and steady work. And if you break an agreement, you just simply start over. Again, it's not an invitation for you to beat yourself up or let the negative self-talk uh, happen again. It just means start over. And then over time, it becomes more natural to you. You'll begin to notice the changes. And um, it's his contention that that fourth, that that fourth agreement is really the one that sets you free. It's the one that allows you to push further into the things that you would like to accomplish. Um without being distracted. If you are living by these agreements, if you're being impeccable with what you say, if you're not taking things personally, you're not making assumptions, it becomes much easier to do your best. So I do see the correlation in all of these working together. I thought it was a really beneficial book. Again, it's very small. Um, I read it in just like an hour or two. Um, and yeah, I know I read a lot of books, but honestly, it's very, very small book. It is literally, I'm going to tell you how many pages is it? It is 138 
actual pages. Some of that's prayers at the end. So um, if you don't even want to include the prayers, it would be 129 pages. And it's a small book, so the pages aren't even very big. But anyway, really good book. A lot to really think about here. As I said, I think a lot of it I immediately felt some pushback towards because it makes you examine, it makes you be um, self-examine, you know, to examine yourself, which is very difficult and very uh, uncomfortable. Um, But I am super, super thankful for my friend. Her name is Jessica. She's the one that suggested this book and it's taken me a while to get to it. Um, But I felt like it was such a benefit having read it that I still wanted to share it, even though she decided she wasn't up for the conversation. Uh, which is interesting because she and I could sit and have the conversation. She'd be fine. I think the microphone just freaked her out. Kind of freaks me out too. You guys don't know that, but I feel sick to my stomach every time I turn the microphone on. Um, but I just make myself do it and it has gotten easier. See, there's that practice until it's perfect. Well, it's never going to be perfect, but that's okay. Uh, anyway, that is the book for the day. The four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Uh, I highly recommend it at least to make you start thinking and to start questioning where some of these agreements might fit into your life and make it a more positive experience for you. That's the podcast today, ladies and gentlemen. That's the book. Um, I'm not positive what we're going to have up next. I got a few things in the works, um, but I have enjoyed my time with you. Thank you so much for sitting and chatting with me about books. Everybody go out, make it a great day. Uh, as this podcast is dropping very quickly, I will say if you are able to vote, get out and vote, um, be involved, take care of people, take care of yourself, and read a book. Bye.